joining us once again on the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. This episode is going to be a little different. I want to warn you about that right up front. If you listened to the audio clue on the last show for the game I had originally intended to talk about today, you might have realized that it was from 1982's Mr. Do by Universal and Taito. Of course, the problem with that being I had covered Mr. Do on the second episode of the podcast. Then I was lucky enough to have a new subject fall into my lap, so to speak, when Shay Mathis, the owner and manager of the Arcadia Retrocade, went on a little trip a couple weeks ago and returned with an absolutely beautiful and pristine Arabian arcade cabinet from 1983 by Sun Electronics and Atari, a title that we'd been seeking for the arcade since we opened the doors to the public nearly four years ago now. I quickly prepared the podcast for Arabian to then find out that the No Quarter podcast, another excellent show for you arcade addicts, had just covered it on June 12th. These kind of overlaps happen now and again, but I felt I better change the subject of the show again. So you might think of this as somewhat of a bonus episode. There will still be plenty of mention of classic arcade games and such, but for this show, I will share some of my personal memories of that very magical arcade of my youth, Showbiz Pizza. It's tough being a big kid. The bus driver hollered at me. I lost my lunch money, and my teacher told me I wasn't living up to my full potentiality. And I don't even know what that means. But at Showbiz Pizza, you can act like a kid. You can have more fun than you ever did. Before we get into some of those cherished memories of Showbiz Pizza, I figure I should give you a little background history on how that arcade-slash-pizza chain came to be. And that is thanks to a man who has rightfully become a legend in the gaming industry, recipient of the BAFTA Fellowship, Consumer Electronics Association Hall of Fame inductee, as well as the Video Game Hall of Fame, and named as one of Newsweek's 50 Men Who Changed America. I'm talking about Atari founder Nolan Bushnell. After selling Atari to Warner Communications in 1976 for a staggering $28 million, Bushnell stayed on as the head of Atari, but was sadly finding that his input was being largely ignored by the corporate heads. He needed something to do with his time, so he began devoting his energy to Atari's ideas for what was called Pizza Time Theater, a family restaurant that offered not just safety for kids and peace of mind for their parents, but let those children go nuts with a vast selection of arcade games, Atari arcade games. Keep in mind, there weren't many family arcades back in the day, and Bushnell has said that for some kids, the only places they could get their gaming fix was at some rather shady places. Bushnell wanted a little of the magic that one can find in Disney World for the chain of pizza restaurants, which is how the characters of Jasper T. Jowls, 
Pasquale, and of course, the soon-to-be mascot for the chain, Chuck E. Cheese, came to be. By using animatronics to let the characters perform shows to entertain the families while they dined on pizza, Bushnell really delivered something that had never been seen before. The first Pizza Time Theater opened in San Jose, California back in 1977. It was a hit, claiming it carried over 100 games, including arcade machines, pinball tables, and games of chance. Which was great for Nolan, as he had reached a point where he could no longer tolerate the higher-ups at Atari. So he decided to buy out the company's shares in Chuck E. Cheese. Realizing, of course, that not just families in San Jose would want to visit Pizza Time Theaters. Real quick, you might be thinking that Bushnell would just jump right back into the business of selling hugely popular arcade games. But he had signed a five-year non-competitive agreement, so he couldn't get back into the arcade game business. Anyway, in 1979, Bushnell made the acquaintance of a man named Robert L. Brock, who was a giant in the hotel industry thanks to his Holiday Inn hotel properties, the largest holder in the world back in 1979. A multi-million dollar agreement was drafted by Bushnell and Brock, who planned on opening up around 280 Chuck E. Cheese time theaters across America. Brock began having doubts about the animatronics being used in the Pizza Time Theater locations, though. Especially when he saw what Aaron Fetcher, a young man who'd created an animatronic development business called Creative Engineering Incorporated, was coming up with in terms of design and execution for his animatronic creations. Like the doo-wop singing group called the Wolfpack Five. Brock felt that to keep any competitors on the wrong foot in the future, the wise decision was to hire Vector and Creative Engineering Incorporated. Which, by the way, Bushnell actually tried to buy the company from Vector back in 1978, after seeing the Wolfpack 5 perform at the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions Convention. To protect his interests, Brock broke contract with Bushnell and crafted a new agreement with Vector to produce animatronic shows for Showbiz Pizza Place. Vector would get 20% share of ownership for crafting the Rock of Fire Explosion, exclusively for use, of course, at Showbiz Pizza locations. Which is how visitors became acquainted with head mascot for the locations, Billy Bob Broccoli, a humble country bear in overalls. His sidekick Looney Bird, Mitzi Mozzarella, who was a mouse in a cheerleading outfit, Beach Bear, stand-up comedian Ralph DeWoof and his wisecracking puppet Earl Schmurl, and taking up most of the center stage for the Rock of Fire Explosion band was Fats Geronimo, the electric keyboard playing gorilla. And, saving the best for last, in my humble opinion, there was Duke LaRue, a dog-like character decked out in an outer space suit who played the drums. Appearing tonight on three stages at Showbiz Pizza Place, the Rock of Fire Explosion. Summer vacation is really swell. The greatest fresh-baked pizza made to order. Over 60 new games and rides. We have it all at Showbiz Pizza Place. 
Now, I'm going to stop there with the official history of showbiz pizza, because in all honesty, I've only scratched the surface, and I want to get right into sharing my memories of the place. In my neck of the woods, as I've mentioned over on the Retroist and on this podcast, our showbiz pizza opened around 1981, but I wouldn't get a chance to step into the place until about a year later. I grew up in a single-parent household, and to be blunt, we hovered right on the poverty line. My father did his absolute best to shield me from this situation, but little things would creep in there to let me know something wasn't quite right sometimes. One of these situations was with showbiz. From the way my schoolmates were talking about the place, you would have thought they had opened up Walt Disney World itself in Evelyn Hills, which is the name of the shopping center that showbiz was located. This scenario reoccurred almost every Monday morning. I would hear about some new game or how much fun so-and-so's birthday party was. Of course, a lot of the talk was about the band. This Rockafire explosion. They were singing Elvis and Beatles songs. Now, some of my school friends knew they were animatronic characters, but there were those that thought they were people in costumes. I guess that is easier to understand when you realize that in between the shows, after the curtains closed on the three stages in the dining area, they would have an employee walking around the restaurant and arcade dressed up in a Billy Bob costume. I'm not kidding when I say I was nearly in tears every single Saturday when I would excitedly ask my father if this was the weekend we would get to go to only be told that it was still too busy to get in. Now, what I didn't know at that time was my father was also being told stories about the place from his co-workers. They were telling him how absolutely expensive it was. You had to pay to be even let into the place. You couldn't have a night with a family for less than 50 bucks. Which was, of course, a huge load of crap. Granted, the birthday parties weren't cheap. Now, during the first year that Showbiz opened, as I've mentioned before on this show, there was a little arcade in town. It was a family-oriented place that also had a miniature, miniature golf course behind the main building called Games People Play. So, while I wasn't getting my heart's desire to experience Showbiz Pizza, it's not like I wasn't getting my arcade game fix. Because nearly every Saturday, my father would take me there and give me about $3 worth of quarters. You might remember this is where I first encountered games like Crazy Climber, Donkey Kong, Zookeeper, Berserk, and Star Castle to name a few. Plus, with the Atari 2600 waiting for me at home, I definitely wasn't being denied video games. Still, every Monday before class, I would hear more and more tales of showbiz pizza. In all honesty, it really started to hurt. School friends were asking why I hadn't gone yet. What could I say? Around that time, to add insult to injury, the local television stations began to air commercials for showbiz, although they never showed the Rockafire explosion or Billy Bob. It was just people playing games and eating pizza. My first glimpse at Billy Bob came thanks to a newspaper article my grandfather clipped for me. When I came down to visit them, he handed it to me, and there Billy Bob was big as life in his yellow and red striped overalls with a friendly smile. I guess it was around this time that my pleas were beginning to finally wear my father down. Even my kid's logic was putting together that after nearly a year of the place being open, it couldn't be that busy anymore. Not so we couldn't get into the place, right? Still, My father didn't agree to take me until about a year after they first opened their doors. I can remember literally screaming in joy when he said that we could go that one faithful Saturday afternoon. I know I was talking a mile a minute on the drive up to Evelyn Hills, which is about 15 minutes from where we lived. 
we pulled into the large shopping center, and my brain immediately picked up that something was amiss. For a place as hugely popular as my father told me Showbiz Pizza was, why were there only a handful of cars? Did they open later on Saturday or something? We parked, and I all but ran to the bright red set of double doors, even though my father kept yelling to watch for cars, naturally. I got up to them, and posted on the windows of the doors was a printed-out sign. Sorry, closed for two weeks for renovations. See you soon. I just stared at that sign, and then into the darkened lobby of showbiz from the door. I was crushed, and I couldn't help it. I started to cry. Please bear in mind how long I had wanted to visit showbiz, and to be sucker-punched like this, it was just too much. I wasn't sobbing uncontrollably or anything like that, but I had been dealt an emotional blow to say the least. My father, to try and raise my spirits, took us to games people play, and gave me a whole five bucks to play with. I remember spending most of it not on an arcade game, but a pinball table. Gottlieb's excellent Mars God of War from 1981. Well, jump forward two weeks later, and I finally got my chance to visit Showbiz. I could hardly sleep the night before I was so excited. I would at last get to see the place for myself. When we pulled into Evelyn Hills, my father and I knew the place was open, because the parking lot was packed. It took a couple minutes to find an open spot, and after we parked, we headed for those double doors again. This time, as we approached them, a young woman in a red vest and black slacks, with a black top hat and the Showbiz Pizza logo on it, opened the doors for us. She welcomed us in, and then we passed through another set of double glass doors. As we opened those, the smell of the pizza, the beautiful cacophony of the mini, many arcade games, as well as the children's and parents' upraised voices shouting to be heard, literally hit us like a wave. I could tell my father was a little nervous at the amount of people, and when the young woman who welcomed us passed by, he asked where we paid for attendance. You can imagine her look of confusion. She let him know that you didn't pay anything to get in, but of course you have to pay for the pizza and the games. As we were standing in the lobby, off to our right was lines of people. Two lines were for ordering pizza, and a third was for a brightly lit area, a back wall filled with display cases and all manner of showbiz-related merchandise and collectibles. I would quickly learn this is where one would redeem the tickets they had earned from the Whack-A-Mole games and Skee-Ball. By the way, the Whack-A-Mole games, they were created by Aaron Fector. To our left is what I've called the Showcase Row, which is where Showbiz placed the latest and most popular of arcade games, in four rows of about eight machines back-to-back. So, take Miss Pac-Man, which was at the end of the middle row. There were two of those machines at the end of that row, with an additional set of two on the other side of the row. So, four Miss Pac-Man cabinets. It made a lot of sense, I think, because this helped to alleviate any real issues with people waiting to play the games. Of course, with that many people packed in together, it was only natural that you were going to have to wait for a game once in a while anyway. Another thing I can vividly recall upon first stepping into showbiz was how hot it was. With all of those people, kids running around, and the heat from the kitchens, plus the arcade games themselves, 
it was very noticeable. I wouldn't go so far to say it was uncomfortable, because ceiling fans and the AC were working constantly, but you could easily work up a sweat while battling it out on those classic games. I also think I should point out what the lighting was like back then. In one word, red. <laughs> it was dark to be sure, and the neon lighting used throughout the place made it seem like you were in a submarine or something. It was more brightly lit towards the front, and of course in the dining area, which is where those three stages were set up for the rock of fire explosion. Now, you didn't have any trouble walking around. I don't mean you would stumble into anything. Heck, the lights from all the arcade games themselves made sure of that. I was without a doubt blown away by what I saw. Visual stimulation overload. I truly didn't know what I wanted to do first. Thankfully, my father helped in that decision. That and the long line of people waiting to order might have had something to do with it. This is where I was first introduced to the coin changer. Games people play used quarters. And now I needed to use tokens? There were stickers on every machine next to the coin slots telling us this. But before that happened, and I should say all of this experience was probably in the first five minutes of stepping into the place. A showbiz pizza attendant arrived using a bullhorn announcing they were about to have a video game competition. The winner would receive their very own arcade game to take home. I didn't know what a video game competition was, but my father quickly signed me up. And I stood in line with about 10 other kids ranging from my age, which was 10 years old at the time, to some who were even in their late teens. So the very first game I ever played at showbiz was in a competition. And it was... Stern's 1982 platformer, Bagman. Now I'll leave the details for that competition to the Bagman episode, but I will let you know that I didn't walk away with the arcade cabinet, especially since it was my first try playing the game. On the right-hand side of the showcase row was a ramp that led down to a lower floor. This is where the skee-ball games were located, brightly lit and lined up against the south wall. But the rest of the ample floor space had even more arcade cabinets. I've mentioned on past shows, these were arcade games that weren't the latest or quite as popular, like the intended subject of this show, Arabian. Nintendo's Popeye, William's Moon Patrol, and Pingo, to name a few. In total, I would say there was probably about 60-plus games at that showbiz pizza. I would reckon that games people play had only about 25, but granted, they weren't housed in as big a place as showbiz. I made my way through both floors over and over again, stepping in to play a vacated game like Donkey Kong Jr. before circling them all once more. My father, who I've mentioned, never ever has been one to love video games, decided pretty quickly order a pizza and have a nice glass of cold beer, taking it easy in a booth in the dining area. Yeah, back in the day, showbiz pizza served beer. The one instruction he gave me was to keep my eye on the various monitors around the place. They had numbers that popped up on them. These were of course the pizza order numbers. And since this was in the golden age of the arcades, the numbers frequently would pop up and then be destroyed by the spaceship from Asteroids or be eaten up by Pac-Man. By the time I saw our order number, I was really needing a break. It was kind of all too much to be honest. I had never seen so many arcade games in my life. 
It was Nirvana. Or at least I thought it was, because while we were eating our pizza, and let me just stop for a second, Showbiz Pizza really sold how great their food was. I mean, their big thing was pizza, right? I bet that pizza tastes good. Mm-hmm. You've never seen a place like Showbiz Pizza Place will serve you a pizza second to none. So come for the pizza, stay for the fun. Showbiz Pizza Place with over 60 electronic games, pizza baked fresh every day, and the stage show extravaganza on three stages. So come for the pizza, stay for the My lord, I can still taste how horrid that pizza was. It may not have been that way in all locations, but our showbiz pizza, I quickly learned to order the sub sandwiches. I mean, I know microwave pizza gets a bad rap, but even as a kid, I had some sort of taste buds, and they were not real happy with the pepperoni pizza I was eating. Back to the story. The curtains on the stage is open, and I was properly introduced to the Rockafire explosion. And I completely lost my mind. Everything that my school friends had talked about the place, except the pizza, hadn't properly prepared me for the experience. That goes double for the characters of the Rockafire explosion. Showbiz Pizza is an incredibly strong memory for me, and one of those reasons is, of course, the many, many arcade games I played there for the first time. But it was the Rockafire band and Billy Bob that people my age remember most fondly. You can see some vintage videos of their performances on YouTube, and by today's standards, it may look a little clunky. But back then, it was still light years ahead of what I had ever seen. More importantly, the characters at Showbiz Pizza had just that. Character. And in spades. They laughed at each other's jokes, even ripped each other. For example, it's a little evident that Duke LaRue may not be the sharpest in terms of intellect. But I will go on record with this statement, he was hands down the greatest singer in the Rockafire explosion. Here we go again. <laughs> Now, Duke had some help from Fats in that song clip you just heard, but I think that helps to demonstrate just the kind of quality that Aaron Fector was putting into the animatronic shows for Showbiz Pizza. The amazing thing wasn't that I was blown away by the band, but that my father was as well. We made eye contact, and his expression was easily readable as, I can't believe they pulled this off. With the 50s songs, the Beatles, and Ed Elvis Presley covers in the mix, I think it's easy to see why adults enjoyed listening to the Rockafire Explosion, and why they didn't mind bringing their kids back week after week, like my father did. After eating some of the pizza, I quickly made my way back to the floor of the arcade, until I'd spent all of my tokens. 
probably had stayed there for an hour or two and I was well and truly spent emotionally. But on the way out, that young woman who had welcomed us was quick to meet us again as we were leaving. I guess from my father's questions when we arrived, she could tell it was our first time. She rushed up to me, knelt down, and tied a Billy Bob balloon on my wrist. Friends, it was truly the perfect end to my first visit. Magical to say the least. On the way home, it was my father who couldn't stop talking about the place. The way his co-workers had described the rock fire explosion, he had it in his mind that it was a puppet show of some kind. Heck, when we visited my grandparents, he admitted how impressed he was by the place. The next Saturday, we went back, and it became standard practice. Every Saturday, I would get $5, which seemed like a fortune to me. We very rarely ate while there, but considering I can still taste that pizza, ugh, that wasn't a bad thing. So many memories were made at that showbiz pizza. I really could go on and on. Eventually, Chuck E. Cheese was bought out by Showbiz Pizza. And many years later, after that, this was the early 90s, I believe, they phased out Showbiz to turn all of the restaurants into Chuck E. Cheese's. Why? Because the man in charge at that time demanded that Creative Engineering Incorporated hand over all rights to the Rock of Fire explosion without pay, which you might imagine Aaron Fector refused to do. Since the company owned all of the rights to Chuck E. Cheese, the order was given to strip all showbiz pizza places of Billy Bob and the Rock of Fire explosion. There's a chilling video online, and that I've shared over at The Retroist, of the instructions to the techs on how to, well, basically skin the characters. It's pretty disturbing to watch. And I think that about wraps up our podcast for this go-around. But before I end it, I want to thank you all for listening. My greatest concern is I'm scared this turned out to be a clip episode. I truly hope, though, I was able to give you some insight as to why Showbiz Pizza is still so close to my heart today. I know I've mentioned it before, but it's a pretty special feeling here at the Arcadia Retrocade. Shay opened it up in that very Evelyn Hill shopping center, just about six or seven doors down from the original Showbiz Pizza location. For a brief moment, he had played with the notion of renting the spot, and that certainly would have been an amazing thing to have happened. But to be honest, the rent there was too high and the space too big for what he needed. Of course, now, in a couple of months, he's planning to open the second wing of the arcade. As it stands, the arcade has about 130 arcade titles in the main building. Maybe if I luck out and hit the lottery or something, we can buy that old showbiz location. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast has a Facebook page now. So, if you can, hop on over and give us a like. It's a great spot to share your own arcade memories and enjoy the celebration of classic arcade and home video games. Our ending theme, which is entitled River Raid, was composed by the extremely talented Tony Longworth. You can listen to even more of his music on SoundCloud and on his official site, which you can reach at www.tonylongworth.com. Friends, if you have any feedback for the show, you can reach me at VicSage at RetroWest.com. The podcast is, of course, on iTunes, and if you have a moment, I'd really appreciate it if you could stop by there and give us a rating. It certainly helps to get the word out to new listeners. For further information about the Arcadia Retrocade, please make sure to follow them over on their Facebook page. I'll be sure to provide a link on the Retroist post. Of course, I want to give a huge thanks to the Retroist for hosting this podcast. And when you need your daily retro fix, why not visit the Retroist at www.retroist.com. Have a token on me as we listen to a clip for the game I will discuss on the next show. Welcome aboard, Captain.
This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye, and we hope to see you next time.